You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Don't we have like five union members running for office here in Southwest Washington? Heck yeah, a lot of union members are trying to make a difference in their community. On the Working to Live in Southwest Washington podcast, why are so many union members running for office this year? In order to make any real money from lap dances, you have to be tipped at the end of the dance by the customer. So like with other workers that earn money primarily through tips, you are more vulnerable to sexual harassment and assault because you have to appease the customer in order to be tipped by the customer. Strippers seek justice at work. Belabored talks with Velveeta. It's just not true that it happened in the 70s. It was all coming together. It was all really becoming apparent if we watched the signs and paid attention in the 1950s. And you have to give the unions credit. They were trying to get out in front of conservation and the environment. On the Tales from the Ruther Library podcast, Louise Malone discusses how the steelworkers pushed for an investigation into dangerous smog in the Monongahela Valley. Just in discussing it with the room, particularly what we were going to do with slavery, talking to the writers of color in the room, we quickly landed on what if we did a fantasy that had characters of color that wasn't largely based in trauma and in the trauma of slavery? What if it could just be a pure fantasy? So I think what we landed on was let's, let's, create our own version of Steve Bonnet, the actual Steve Bonnet, the actual Edward Teach. Not that interesting to us because they're kind of repellent. David Jenkins discusses the new HBO series, Our Flag Means Death, on the On Writing podcast. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Hey, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, take a minute, subscribe, and share the show. Sonic Solidarity Works. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Hello, working people of Southwest Washington. You're listening to episode 33 of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. We're also a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, with over 160 radio shows and podcasts for working people just like you. Find out more about the network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm... Shannon Myers. And I'm Harold Phillips. Did you see the latest Gallup survey on union approval in the United States? It's up to 71%. That's the highest it's been since 1965. You know, I think part of that jump in unions approval ratings has to do with all the victories we've been seeing lately at Starbucks, Amazon, Trader Joe's. And the victories that are coming out of the strikes that we're seeing, too. Union members are really stepping up and showing other working folks that they can join together and win. And you know what else union members are doing, Harold? Mm. They're stepping up in other ways. 
more and more of them are actually running for office to represent us, especially in this election cycle in Southwest Washington. Yeah, don't we have like five union members running for office here in Southwest Washington? Heck yeah, a lot of union members are trying to make a difference in their community. We're lucky enough to have one of those union members who's running for office today. Terry Niles. She's a registered nurse and member of the Washington State Nurses Association and a candidate for the Washington State House of Representatives in the 17th Legislative District. Terry, what made you want to take the extraordinary step of running for office? So first, I want to thank you guys for allowing me to be here and speak with all of my brothers and sisters out there in the union community. Um, I have been an active union member for my entire career, and unions are one of the greatest forces for good that I've ever been involved with. I'm a 25-year critical care nurse. I um, I see public service has been kind of a lifetime goal. And so I'm retiring from nursing and I just see being of service to my community as a state representative is just an extension of my desire to serve the public. Particularly after the pandemic, you know, it really came down to the working folks are being left behind. There's so much that needs to be done. We need representatives that are going to be a voice for them in Olympia to strengthen workers' rights and our collective bargaining rights and make sure that we really address the issues that affect our communities. So you mentioned bringing that feeling of solidarity with you up to Olympia. Do you think that's going to change anything in the way that the state house runs? I have hope for that. One thing that Eunice has always been a voice for is underserved people. Uh, Example, I just spent some time with people that are being forced out of their homes. These are people that live in, you know, manufactured home parks, mobile home parks that are being bought out and forced out of their homes. These are working people that are choosing to live in the most affordable means that we have. And when we're addressing affordable housing, we need to protect the affordable housing that we have. These are people that are making smart decisions for themselves and for their families. And now they're being kind of thrown under a bus. So these are the kind of people that I want to be a voice for. Um, I listened to their stories for an hour or so, and it was heartbreaking. That's what I want to be as a representative. I want to bring, you know, working people's stories to the table. These people are being thrown out? We have large corporations that are buying mobile home parks. I spoke to a woman that had bought her place only two months before they just suddenly said, oh, this mobile home park has been sold. And she's like, I can't sell it. I can't move it. What do I do? I just spent $200,000. It's heartbreaking. And it's elderly people, you know, on fixed incomes that have decided like, oh, I'm going to live in these mobile home parks that are nice and a way to have a sense of ownership and still be able to afford to live. It's also not only the elderly, it's single parents that are buying manufactured homes or mobile homes just to give their children a sense of stability and a place to live. So there's large groups that are buying them and they're either raising their rents 10 times what they can afford on a fixed income or selling property. It was a dire situation, as you can imagine me as a union member. And as a nurse, I was listening to it and it was just heartbreaking. These are the kind of people I want to stand up for. There's many other issues that affect affordable housing. But the one thing that we need to do is protect the affordable housing that we do have. I'm really glad, Terry, that you brought up affordable housing. When we talk to labor councils all around the state, we are all facing 
this houseless problem. You go to Spokane, it's there. You go to mm-hmm. Tri-Cities, it's there. You go to Bellingham, it's there. You're not making the situation better by kicking people out of their affordable homes. Right now, I have my daughter and her family living in a two-bedroom, one-bath house in downtown Vancouver, and they're paying $2,000 a month for rent. They're not even buying. So to have these people who are living in affordable homes, manufactured homes, to then say, you got to go, they're going to end up on the street with all of our other houseless community members. Exactly. I don't think they really understand houselessness right now. You know, there might be some people out there with some mental health issues, and I'm not denying that there is, but there's so many reasons why people are houseless right now. And the lack of affordable housing is one of the main issues. It's kind of discouraging when I'm talking to my opponents and that's what they think is happening and they're not addressing the real issues. Thank you, Terry Niles. You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 254 of Belabored, the podcast from Descent Magazine about work, workers, and resistance. I apologize for my croaky voice this week. I am getting over a cold, but I am doing better and I'm going to continue to pour tea on it and struggle through today's episode. Today, we're talking about the union drive at Star Garden, a North Hollywood strip club where the dancers are battling a two-month lockout. Sometimes the toughest jobs are the ones that require you to look like you're always having a great time. For strippers, that often means dancing and performing through some pretty annoying, uncomfortable, and sometimes outrageous circumstances, such as an audience member trying to pick you up while you're in the middle of a lap dance, or your boss telling you that you just have to put up with customers touching you inappropriately while on stage, or just having to give a huge chunk of your tips over to the management after every performance. So a group of strippers in Los Angeles has decided to stand up for their rights at work, and they filed for a union election with the National Labor Relations Board. They're part of a group called Strippers United, which is pushing for fair, decent work for strippers of all backgrounds and all types of venues. And they're putting a spotlight on systemic labor issues in an industry that is often overlooked when we think about service and entertainment jobs. Their issues include unsafe working conditions, discrimination, and retaliation for organizing. The strippers at the Star Garden Topless Dive Bar in North Hollywood are organizing with the Actors' Equity Association, which they hope will lay the foundation for organizing strip clubs across the country. To learn more about how strippers are mobilizing, I spoke with Velveeta, an organizer working with Actors' Equity, an activist with Strippers United, and a dancer at the Star Garden. Here's Velveeta. So we have recently partnered, uh, affiliated with Equity, and filed for our official union election Wednesday. And I would say that our union has really existed since the day we walked out on March 18th of this year, because in that moment, we stood together in solidarity. And there were 15 of us that signed the original petition out of, I think, 23 dancers at the time. So a very strong majority. And since then, we've really held together. There's only been like two dancers that have cross the picket line from that original group and more have signed on. So really, and we had um, pursued unionizing, we were getting ready to pursue 501c5 status with uh, Serpers United. So we were even looking at 
forming an independent union before equity became an option. For uh, audience members who are like not familiar with what the uh, day-to-day experience is like um, in your job, could you maybe describe what a typical day at work is like and like what kind of interaction do you have typically with both the audience members as well as uh, your managers? How do you get paid? What kind of administrative things do you have to deal with uh, just to make sure that you know you're paid on time and that um, you have your your basic needs met? Yeah, so at this particular club, a shift was about six hours. Um, you'd show up, change in the dressing room, and then you're working the floor, you're uh, talking to customers, getting to know them, um, having conversation, asking at some point, you know, would you like to go for a lap dance? And then so you're giving lap dances, and then you're also performing on stage, um, and there's a rotation. And in this particular club, we were not paid wages. We were entitled to keep our tips, but the club took half of our lap dance earnings. So a lap dance is sold for $40 for two songs. And so we're getting 20 of that and dancing for $10 a song. So practically the way that all of this is set up, in order to make any real money from lap dances, you have to be tipped at the end of the dance by the customer. So like with other workers that earn money primarily through tips, you are more vulnerable to sexual harassment and assault because you have to appease the customer um, in order to be tipped by the customer. And that was what was happening, especially because this club was not enforcing any sorts of standards or rules for customers. In order to be tipped on stage, you know, sometimes a customer would be holding the money at the tip rail and want to put it into your clothes. Um, And uh, sometimes if you get close enough to the tip rail, a customer would touch you inappropriately. And at other places, uh, touching is not allowed on stage, period. So in this situation, we were dealing with a lot of unwanted touching on stage, unwanted touching on the floor, um, aggressive like slapping and uh, of our butts and like just like really physical contact in the lap dance area. Girls were getting picked up in the lap dance area. I was personally personally picked up at one point in a dance with a customer that was being pretty rough. And afterwards, the security guard told me that I shouldn't let customers pick me up, even though he was watching the whole time and it was his job really to step in and stop that. Um, But our security guards were told by management not to get involved and that management was the one that would be coordinating all of this. But they were watching and doing nothing because their priorities were with the customer. This was this is definitely an extreme case. And what happens when uh, this behavior is tolerated in the club is customers are watching each other. So it compounds itself. And then the customers who are respectful are turned off by seeing this happen and seeing management do nothing about it. And so good customers are more likely to spend less time in the club. That was Velveeta, Star Garden dancer, strippers, United activist, and unionist. Hello. You're listening to On Writing, a podcast from the Writers Guild of America East. In each episode you'll hear from the writers of your favorite films and television series. They'll take you behind the scenes, go deep into the writing and production process, and explain how they got their project from the page to the screen. 
You are listening to On Writing, a podcast of the Writers Guild of America East. I'm your host, Allison Herman. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. And today I'm joined by David Jenkins, who is the creator and showrunner of Our Flag Means Death, a half-hour comedy on HBO Max. Welcome to On Writing. I am here with David Jenkins, who is the creator and showrunner of Our Flag Means Death, which is the pirate show slash queer romance restarving takeaway TV that you never know you needed, but we are so glad we have. David, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. So since this is the On Writing podcast, and we like to sometimes start with some more general questions about your writing background and your writing approach. And with your career specifically, I was really intrigued by the fact that you come from a theater background, which I think a lot of, or an increasing number of TV writers have these days. But I'm always curious how that informs people's approaches and, and what that transfer between mediums was like. So for you, how has coming from theater informed your work as a television writer? I think mainly it just means that you're used to being poor and uh, working crazy hours and probably self-financing your stuff. And, you know, I, I wonder how different it is actually from coming from an indie film background or an indie anything, an indie storytelling background. Let's just say that you know, where you get used to doing all these theater productions, you produce them and then you make the costumes and you do the, you do everything. And then going into television, you're like, oh, there's help. (laughs) There's a writer's room to help make the story and, and break the story, which is the hardest part. There's just more hands on deck. Obviously there are other differences But the biggest thing is like, there's help and there's scale. And if I ask, I can offhandedly say, um, uh, can we have pigs in this scene? And then someone goes, how many? Never would happen in theater. So like everything on top of just like the bare minimum is gravy. I think so. You get get spoiled quickly because then you're like, oh, I only get five pigs. What this budget sucks, and then like I requested Vietnamese pot belly, and this is simply <laughs> not the right variety. <laughs> You've said in previous interviews that you first learned about this story of Steed Bonnet and his relationship with Blackbeard from your wife, but I'm very interested in what the leap is from oh, that's an interesting story to oh, maybe I can build an entire multi million dollar small business, as you put it around this idea? Well, it's pirates. And pirates means people because they are on ships and those ships have crews. And then pretty quickly, you're into that conversation where they're like, can uh, can we just have like uh, three crew members, five? And you're like, no, man, it's a 20 gun ship. They have They have all of these people. And then they go places. So it's like Star Trek. You're on a ship and then you go to distant lands and then you have to create the distant lands. And pretty quickly you're like, oh, okay, this is fantasy. This is a, this is a fantasy thing akin to Game of Thrones. This is not what we do in the shadows where you can have four regular cast members in a set and like they're roommates in a house somewhere. 
which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the show totally fits into this mini-trend, uh, I'm not sure what to call it, maybe like gleeful anachronism, where I'm thinking of like Dickinson or The Great or Bridgerton, which are these shows that are set in real history and often involve real people, as your show does. But they're very um, open about not being 100% faithful to everything that happens in the time period in which they're set. And when you decide, like, I'm going to tell the story about real people, how did you decide, you know, what you wanted to keep and what you wanted to invent and where that line exists within your manufactured reality? Well, it's, on one hand, it's easy because it's just easier not to research and it's more fun. And in talking with Taika about it initially, he was very much like, oh yeah, don't research anything. Don't, don't do any re- research at all, man. And I was kind of feeling the same thing where I was like, I don't, I think this can be a pure fantasy. And then there's a part of it I was I was just having this conversation last night with one of my producers and you're dealing with Blackbeard Edward Teach who was a pretty prodigious rapist and killer pirates you don't want to get to know pirates they, they didn't do stuff that was great so you're already reinventing that and then Steed had slaves in Barbados, which was a particularly brutal place to be a slave. And just in discussing it with the room, particularly what we were going to do with slavery, talking to the writers of color in the room, we quickly landed on what if we did a fantasy that had characters of color that wasn't largely based in trauma and in the trauma of slavery? What if it could just be a pure fantasy? So I think what we landed on was let's, let's create our own version of Steed Bonnet, the actual Steed Bonnet, the actual Edward Teach. Not that interesting to us because they're kind of repellent. Um, and I think whenever you're making a, a story in this era you know, one of the things that's really good about it is, I and I think one of the things that's great about Bridgerton is when you're making these stories inclusive, by definition, making these stories inclusive can be like, oh, we can go into the trauma of how othered and how tortured these cultures were, but we have an awful lot of that. What we don't have is a princess bride feeling thing that is inclusive and speaks to these characters' dreams and their love interests and these lighter things. And I think I think that was the driving force behind like, okay, we're 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 doing our own version of history and that's why we've landed in this place. When you actually assembled as a room, you made the show, you know, very much in the pandemic time. Was this on Zoom? Zoom, yeah. Yeah, and this How was room. that? It's good. Oh, I was just asking how that process was for you, yeah. I like it. I like it. It's great. I mean, you get... 
We work for we work in corporate America. If you're making a TV show, you are making corporate art. You're making it can be great. It can be amazing corporate art. We get as much or more done in that time frame than we do when my my writers on Zoom didn't have to commute anywhere. It means I can have writers from I had writers in the room from New York, LA, Miami, New Zealand, all in the same room. Never happens. And I just think there's a level of focus. And then just, you know, people don't tell you this, but like you're running a show and then suddenly it's like you need to find office space. And you need to like someone's like, hey, the copier um is arriving at, at this time. It's like, I don't f- fucking care about a copier. I'm a writer, man. I'm not managing real estate. Like, I can I just want to turn on my thingy, go to imagination land, have lunch, do it again, and then be home. And to my mind, that's work-life balance. And that that is just a fantastic way to do it. Congratulations again on the show, and I truly cannot wait to watch season two. Thanks, Allison. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You can find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and me. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our podcast at laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.